Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And how awesome it is for us to be able to gather together like this and really to just celebrate life itself and celebrate the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, I walked in here a moment ago, in the sanctuary at least, and I heard a little more uh, buzzing, a lot more people talking than the last couple weeks. I don't know what happened. I looked at Landon. I said, something has happened. They have awakened today. There's life in this place. And there should always be life in this place. There should always be life within the, within the experience of the believer. Because we have known life itself and we have come to worship and celebrate and just enjoy what Jesus Christ has done for us. I want to remind you of that this morning. In this passage that we're going to look at, I want to remind you that we have life. And that, that life has impact across all of our experiences here on this earth. And even as we face death itself, we have the life of Christ that is promised to us. I want to share that with you this morning. Mark chapter 5. I know we backed up a little bit. Some of you thought we had already covered this ground and we'd go to Mark chapter 6 but I want to back up if you will because there's one one story here that we kind of like skipped over that is so significant for us as it teaches us about life so Mark chapter 5 those of you who were here two or three weeks ago you heard me talking about the field trip and some of you that have come in and you missed last week said I didn't miss anything obviously I may skip again no you better not skip again don't do that but I do want to back up to the idea of the field trip, of where Jesus was taking his disciples to show them practically his power and his authority. He had been teaching all day. He had, of course, gotten into the boat, used it as a pulpit to teach, and then he had crossed over to the other side. In that process, you'll remember that a great mega storm comes. And through Jesus' simple word, that storm is calmed. Peace is given. Jesus demonstrated his authority over nature. And then, of course, as we had worked through this passage in Mark chapter 5, you'll see that they reach the other side and they're immediately welcomed by this Gentile, by this demoniac, this individual who had been controlled by demons who had been isolated and alienated from any social contact, even from the worship itself. And Jesus demonstrated his power over demons by releasing this individual from the bondage that he had experienced. So now we pick up in verse 21. After those in the Decapolis had seen the great power over the demons, they had asked Jesus to leave. It says in verse 21, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, so he granted their request, he crossed back over the Sea of Galilee. It says that when he had gotten there, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea. So here he is. He's come back into this area, most likely around Capernaum. He's there. People begin to gather around him. The word has gotten out that the, Jesus has come. In verse 22 it says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she might be healed and she will live. 
So immediately, as Jesus steps out of the boat, as he's met by all these different people, he is confronted by the great need in his presence. In particular, the scripture says that there's this guy named Jairus. He is the ruler of the synagogue, or one of the rulers. In that day and age, you would have these people that would direct the services, and they would also supervise the building itself, the synagogue itself. And Jairus is one of those individuals. He is... He, he might be what some would call the big cog in the synagogue, okay? He is there. He's one of the rulers. He's one of the people of position. But it's amazing how position doesn't mean much when you're, you're in such a desperate need. He comes before Jesus. And he kneels before him. He falls down before him. And he begins to beg him. He begins to ask him. He begins to implore him to come and to do something for his little daughter. His little daughter is lying there. She is very close to death. And this ruler knows that he needs the touch of the master's hand. Now this is such in contrast with most religious leaders of the day. Most religious leaders of the day, at best, they were skeptical of the teacher from Nazareth. They were skeptical of him. Many of the other religious leaders were just downright hostile toward him. And all of his friends, all of those that he would sit in power with, all of them would dismiss this carpenter from Nazareth. But not Jairus. Why? Because as I said a moment ago, when you find yourself in desperate situations, desperate need, it doesn't matter about your position It doesn't matter about what power you think you have. It doesn't matter about the political consequences that may come in your life. All you know is you need help. Don't know if you've ever been there before. Don't know if you've ever realized there's some things that money cannot buy. There's some things that your talents or your skills cannot achieve. There are some things that you cannot do on your own. Perhaps you've experienced that as you've sat in a doctor's office. Perhaps you've experienced that when you have dealt with a rebellious child. Perhaps you've dealt with it just as life has been thrown your way. And this guy, he comes before Jesus and he he recognizes that within Jesus there's something special, there's some authority, there's some power. He knows, he has faith that this Jesus can lay his hands upon this little daughter and she might be healed and escape death. He believes that. And he doesn't, it doesn't matter what the other religious leaders, it doesn't matter about what's going to happen in the synagogue. Will they church him? Well, I guess you would say synagogue him. Cast him out. Will they cast him out because of his coming to Jesus? He's not worried about that stuff. Because his little girl is sick. Well, he begs Jesus to come. Notice verse 24. So Jesus went with him. So Jesus hears the plea. Jesus says, let's go. Let's go see the little girl. I'm going with you. He goes with him and a great multitude follow him and thronged him. So in other words, all this crowd, they press in on every side. Now... 
This story is interrupted by the story I shared a few weeks ago. This story, as Jesus is going, what happens? The woman that has this blood disease touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and as we know the story, she finds healing. You remember it, right? Very good, very good. I don't have to preach through those verses again. He's interrupted. He performs healing. Now, if you're Jairus, certainly you're wanting to get to your daughter as quickly as possible. And perhaps at first you're annoyed that somebody has interrupted Jesus and his ministry. But look on the other side. Think how the faith of Jairus must have been heightened by this work. Because what is Jairus wanting? Jairus is wanting his daughter to be healed. And as they're going down to his house, Jesus, well, he performs this healing in this woman's life. This woman that had had no hope, this woman who had been to every doctor and had all the different procedures, he had performed a healing in her life. So can you imagine how the faith of Jairus must have just shot up? Like, I knew I picked the right guy. I knew he had the authority. I knew he could do something about this. He just demonstrated it in this woman's life. So I believe that Jairus was on the mountaintop, if you will, after this woman was healed. But then the despairing, desperate words of verse 35. As Jesus had been speaking to this woman, speaking about her healing and how she had had peace, it says in verse 35, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It was at the moment where he knew that Jesus could perform an act of healing. He saw for himself what he had done for this woman. It was at that moment, while Jesus was still speaking the word of healing and peace, it was at that moment that he received that word. Your daughter is dead. No reason to talk to the rabbi anymore. No reason for Jesus to come. It's over. Now, I can't imagine how his faith faltered to be at the pinnacle of faith and then all of a sudden to experience the depth, the devastation of such a loss. How his faith faltered and how fear itself followed. Jesus heard it. Aren't you proud Jesus hears our conversations? And he hears what happens and he heard the brokenness in these words. It says, and as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Literally, it means like, stop being afraid. Stop fearing. The present tense would say, but go on believing he says hey don't don't let don't let fear consume you at this moment i know that your faith has faltered i know that fear has followed you now and fear has gripped your heart 
But don't let fear take control. You go on believing. You go on having faith. You came to me. It's kind of like Jesus said. You came to me because you believed I could do something for you. You believed me or you came to me because you believed that I had this authority over disease. I have demonstrated it already in this woman's life. I've shown it to you as we were coming down here. And I want you to continue to trust me in what I can do. What a great statement. And how there are times that Jesus just has to speak in our lives in such frank terms, right? In just such ways of saying, hey, I know you're fearful. I know it seems like everything is going against you. I know it seems like there is no hope. But keep on believing. You know, sometimes I look at um, different logos or different themes, especially that sports teams may have. And oftentimes you'll see them like with a simple theme or something like that just means believe, right? Have you, have you ever seen that? Like believe. Maybe a sports team will make that their theme for the season. Believe. Obviously, the Ole Miss Rebels don't do that. But there are teams, we don't believe in anything anymore as far as the football. But anyway, believe. And there is some type of strength in that. There is some type of message in that. I mean, it is important that when you go on the field, you believe that you can compete and that you can make a difference. Like, it's important that you believe in yourself. There is importance in that, right? that you believe you can do this because if you're defeated before you walk out on the field, you're probably going to end up defeated on the field. So there is something to that, believing you can do it. Also, there's something in believing or trusting the other people around you. I think the other night I was at a football game and I heard a coach say something like, believe in one another. That's a great word. Believe that other people are going to do what they need to do in their assignments and you just do what you need to do. You believe that as a team you can do this. You can win. So there is merit in that theme. There is merit in understanding and, and believing that you and the team can do something. But listen to this. When Jesus is saying, don't be afraid but keep on believing, he is inviting Jairus to believe to believe in the Savior, in the Messiah, to believe in Him. Because Jairus could believe in himself and nothing would change. Jairus could believe in the rest of the synagogue and the, and the people who would gather together to worship. Nothing would change. His daughter would still be dead. But Jesus said, you believe in me. I think that's what he, you, you keep believing. Again, you came to me believing. Keep on. Trust me. Hey, it's great that we have friends. It's great that we can believe one another. It's great that we know that we can do certain things. But sometimes we just need to stop and believe in Him. That's where our faith and our trust must lie in Him to do things that we could never do. So look in verse 37. He permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. The three in the inner circle. Or today they'd be known as the clique, right? 
Peter, James, and John, who were like an inner circle to him. Think about the transfiguration. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there with him. They experienced a little more depth, obviously, in experience. For whatever reason, he chose these, Peter, James, and John, to come with him. The rest, no. Verse 38, then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. If the words themselves were not devastating enough in verse 35, when you get to this scene at the house, you see a scene of desperation. Weeping and wailing as death had come that way, as death had visited that household. Now, certainly there were those who were naturally grieving, the family, the parents, I believe at this point, even though I know it could have been a short amount of time here, I do believe that there were those professional mourners or professional weepers who had already gathered. Maybe they were waiting for this to happen, but they came. According to Jewish literature in the early 3rd century, you had to, the poorest of the Jews had to have at least two people there to play the flute, and one person there to be like a griever. Now think about that. In this moment of death, as people would go through these ceremonies and serve, the poorest had to have people there playing flutes, and they had to have one person, a paid professional there, mourning. It was just the custom of the day. For the ruler, he probably had all kinds of people. He probably had a whole orchestra. He probably had all kinds of mourners. And you could imagine the scene when you're walking in, they're playing this, this dirge, they're playing this sad music, they're weeping, they're wailing. How devastating of a sight. And in this scene, Jesus walks in in verse 39 and he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus walks into this and says, what are y'all doing? What, what are y'all, why are you playing those instruments like that? Why are you weeping? Why are you wailing? Why are you going on in such a dramatic fashion? It would seem like Jesus would be insensitive here, but Jesus knew that this child would live again. He says, the child is not dead. The child is sleeping. Now, it could have been just a euphemism that sometimes the New Testament would use to describe death of like sleeping. It's kind of like when we talk about people dying. Sometimes we do not say they died. We say they passed away because it softens it, the language, just a little bit. And perhaps that's what he was saying here. I believe what he meant was because she's about to awake. She's about to be resuscitated. She's about to come back to life. Don't miss it. Because too many people have tried to explain this miracle away. And they've said, see, she was not really dead. She was No, she was dead. She was. Later on, in Luke's version of this, Luke will talk about how her spirit actually returned to her. She was lifeless. But Jesus knew what was going to happen in her life. Look in verse 40. And they ridiculed him. 
Can you see this change of emotion by these paid professionals? They were mourning, they were weeping, and then like on a turn of a dime, they begin to ridicule. The word there actually means to laugh down at, to scoff, to scorn. So here they are weeping, mourning. Jesus comes in and says, what are you doing with all of this commotion? Why are you acting like this? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they begin, ha, ha, just in a moment. They begin, what are you talking about? This, you, you're crazy. This girl is dead. This girl, and can you see this? How all of a sudden the change in emotion, these people that were supposed to be there weeping, and they begin to laugh down. See how manufactured this was, fabricated this was. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child. He brought the parents, those who were with him, and entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said, Talitha kumi, or Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Takes the parents, they come in. Don't miss this tender moment. He brings flesh and blood within that room. His disciples, the parents who are broken, who have no hope. He takes this little girl. He, he touches her. He takes her by the hand. And he says, in his native language, in the Aramaic, he says, little girl, arise. Little girl, I speak to you. Come to life. Walk. Verse 42, one of Mark's favorite words. Immediately. Immediately the girl arose and walked. Because when the word of Jesus Christ is spoken into a person's life, that word is honored and that word is powerful and that word is effective in bringing about the desired result. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. Literally, what that says in the original language is, they were amazed with great amazement. That word amazed, in the original language, it is, it is the word which we derive our English ecstasy from. It could be translated to be without oneself. It's kind of like as Lou and Ida tried to translate it in an idiomatic way. They, they said it's kind of like saying, I got to look another time. I got to look a third time just because I don't believe it. And I, I could imagine, right, to have that amazement, that ecstasy to look. Hey, look, this week, you know, God has given me a great week after, uh, after having to come face you all last Sunday morning on my 40th birthday. 
and experiencing all the jeers and different things this week. It's, it's actually been a great week. Some of you know this, but thank, thanks to a friend of mine, and I, I was able to go to the World Series game last, last week, game five. Right? Some of you, some of you, game five. I left here at 12.20 on Sunday morning. I was in my seats about 5.20 on Sunday evening. I did not speed much. I sat down and I was, I was watching that game. Look, I'm a Cardinals fan. But sitting in that stadium and watching what was going on, my Astro, I was like, this is unbelievable. Some of you, you stayed up. Some of you didn't go to work Monday morning. Like five hours and 20 minutes or something like that, the game was. And it was just, everybody was standing all at once. I mean, they were, I mean, it seemed like we were up all the time. Home run after home run and back and forth. And I mean, at, the, at, at some point, look, I know I get excited, but at some point I just turned and hugged the person next to me. I just bear hugged them like, ah! Man, it was unbelievable. It was like ecstasy. It was almost like being out of oneself for a moment. It was so loud. The roof was on. I mean, you can imagine. It was just so loud. I enjoyed that. and It was wonderful. And I thank God for that experience. You know, I thought about this word when I saw it. They were amazed with great amazement. They had ecstasy about them. It was like they were out of themselves because it seemed like they could look one, two, three times and they still wouldn't believe it. And I say to you, if I experienced that at a ballgame, can you imagine being in that room and seeing your little daughter who was dead and now this daughter is up walking, walking around because Jesus has spoken into her life and has brought to her the very life which had slipped away. How incredible it must have been. I, 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 it doesn't say this, and I don't like to add to the scripture, but, but I think I would have called the orchestra back in and said, hey, let, let's have a praise now, okay? I know we were having some dirges before, but it's time, it's time to worship. It's time to celebrate what Jesus has done. Come in here and you play something. I want you to come play something upbeat, something that will demonstrate praise to our God. Because my child... Is alive. Jesus commanded them strictly that no one should know it. Yes, because it was not his hour, we know. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Why? She's, she's a 12-year-old young girl. She hadn't eaten in a while. She's walking around. She needs some physical nourishment feeder. What have I said over and over the last few weeks? The God of then is the God of now. It's so easy for us to dismiss these stories. It's something that just happens during the apostolic age or when Jesus walked this earth. Our Jesus still has the power to bring life to people. He still does. I want to give you two takeaways real quickly. Right? Two takeaways. I promise very quickly. As I look at this story, I hear first of all this. 
that Jesus has authority over all of life. He has authority over all of life. Now, I've read this whole narrative. I've seen how he's come the storm. I've seen how he's delivered the demoniac. I've seen how he's healed the woman that had the blood disease for 12 years. I have seen now how he brought to life this little girl that was dead. And what have I concluded? What can I conclude from that? Is that Jesus has authority over all of life. Wherever you are. If you're in the boat out on the Sea of Galilee, he's still in charge. If, if you have oppression coming at you, demonic influence is coming, don't forget Jesus still has the ultimate authority over them. If you're going through sickness, if you're going through disease, know that Jesus has all authority over that disease. And even as death enters into your family, or death approaches your heart and life, know that Jesus has authority. That gives me such confidence to live every day, to know that He has authority over all of life. When you get up and go to work tomorrow, and you have faith and trust in your heart that Jesus has authority over all things, it makes a difference in the way you work, the way you live, and the peace you have. When you go to school, different things happen. To know that Jesus has the authority over all this, it should transform your life. It should remind you that every day you have hope in Him. A few weeks ago, I talked about the woman who had the blood disease for 12 years, and I told you then that Jesus gives hope. Because for 12 years, she had been seeking healing. For 12 years, she had been trying to find the right doctor and the right procedure. Nothing would happen. But Jesus brought hope. The demoniac who had been out among the tombs, they'd been isolated. No one could do anything for him. They couldn't restrain him. They couldn't do anything. But Jesus brought hope. When the disciples were in the boat and they thought, we're about to drown. Why are you sleeping while we're being destroyed, Jesus? They had no hope. Until Jesus spoke into their lives and spoke to the storm itself. Hope comes through Jesus. And if you want to look at this, you think about somebody who's dead, look, look at the servants. They said, hey, there's no need for him to come because it's over with. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother the rabbi. It's over. You want to talk about hopelessness? She's dead. Nothing can bring her back to life. Except Jesus. Because Jesus has authority over all of life and because of that there is always hope so I want you to know that when you go out tomorrow and whatever you're doing is there is hope because there is a God who is on the throne that has absolute authority over everything over all life that's the first takeaway the second takeaway is this and it's inferred by the first I know but I gotta have at least two points as a preacher right Jesus has all authority over death he has all authority over life. 
He has all authority over death. Don't miss this. He has the final say when it comes to death itself. Those of us who have experienced death and loss in our hearts and lives. Those of us that know one day that death will come. We know that is not the end for the believer. Because Jesus has all authority over death. I love what one person distributed or what the family distributed of this one individual who had died. He had passed away because of that disease we call cancer. And the family distributed this at his service. It was a little piece. I want to read to you. Cancer is limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot eat away peace. It cannot destroy confidence. It cannot kill a friendship. It cannot shut out memories. It cannot silence courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot reduce eternal life. It cannot quench the spirit. And it cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. It cannot. It is limited. Our God has all authority. And he has all authority over death itself. Why? He proved it here in Mark chapter 5 that he had the power over death. In other moments, we'll see that even as he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, we'll be reminded. But the greatest example was his resurrection itself. And when he came out of the grave, when he walked out of that tomb, that day was the prime, ultimate, supreme example that he had the power over everything, including death, hell, and the grave. Because of that, you and I should experience, we should look at death in that way. We should know that Jesus has the authority. When death enters into our hearts and lives, when it comes to our families, hey, when it comes to us, I know this is hard and this is a sober thought this morning, but understand that outside of the Lord Jesus coming back and taking his church home, outside of that happening, all of us in this place one day will face death. Somebody has said death is the great equalizer and no one escapes it. But I want you to know that even as you think about death itself, there is a God who has the power over death. Death can be ominous, it can be mysterious, it can be fearful for so many. But for the believer, for the Christ follower, we should know that Jesus has the power over death. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when death comes to our hearts, lives, when death claims us, our spirit immediately goes to be with Him. What a wonderful reality. This is the way Paul described it to the Romans. He said, Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even death itself. And then... 
Paul's words to the Thessalonians. Powerful words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Don't miss that. He didn't say you didn't sorrow. He just said you don't sorrow like those who have no hope. He said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. It says one of these days when Jesus comes again, he'll still have the power over death. And he'll still have the power to bring life to these lifeless bodies. One day, there'll be resurrected bodies. Just as our body reflects his resurrected body. How many of us are so grateful for that hope? Go into the Christian cemeteries oftentimes. You will find those bodies buried facing the east. Why? Because of the hope, even in death, of Jesus Christ's return and the life that he will give. You see, Jesus had life. He demonstrated it in the life of Jairus. Jairus means Yahweh enlightens. God enlightens. Oh, God had enlightened his life. By bringing life to his daughter. And he knew, he believed, that this Jesus then could give life. Today, when you go out of this place, and I've been challenging it every Sunday, when you see other people, when you talk to other people, you need to remind them. You need to tell them. He gives life. He gives it to them spiritually. And as he gives it to them spiritually, he promises something much better through the eternal life that we have in him. And one day, through our faith and our trust and through his power, the resurrection itself. Because he gives life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and I pray that you would remind us of the life you've given us. I pray that you would remind us this morning, some of us whose faith is faltering, some of us who allow fear to consume us. Father, we need you to remind us that you have authority over all this life. God, I need and we need you to remind us that you have power over death itself. And God, through these recognitions, through these truths, through these takeaways. I pray that you would encourage us with an amazing amount of hope. That Lord, you would help us serve you more faithfully because we know our confidence and our assurance is in your authority. God, I pray for those in this place that aren't saved, they're lost. I pray today that they'd come to know you. For those of us who are saved, Lord, and we just are struggling. Father, embrace us. 
hear our hurts and pains, hear the conversations that are so difficult, and Lord, speak into our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?